Episode number 37 of the Media Narrative Podcast. I'm Rob Hoschild. Money was not important. It really wasn't. Spiritual experiences were important. And I know what that sounds like if you're listening to this, but that's actually the case. Having experiences, no one was working for money or to make a fortune. Everyone who has made any headway in a career as a music journalist owes a great debt of gratitude to Rona Elliott. Starting in the 70s while working in radio, or by the 80s after she migrated to television, Rona Elliott interviewed Tina Turner, Ray Charles, George Harrison, the Rolling Stones, and countless other huge stars. And it wasn't just that she interviewed these artists, it was that she made them happen on major broadcast networks that had previously shown, let's just say, limited interest in rock stars. And that she broke through these barriers as a woman at a time when those barriers were mighty strong. We met at Berklee College of Music earlier this year when she, photographer Henry Diltz, and several others who worked at Woodstock came to campus to talk about that hugely influential event 50 years hence. In just a moment, you'll hear my conversation with her recorded in a Boston hotel lobby. Some ambient noise and conversation is around. She'll talk about, among other topics, how she bravely got her work to air over the resistance of her bosses and how she was able to get such massive celebrities to open up during interviews. Before we get to my interview with Rona Elliott, I just want to thank everyone who emailed me with ideas and suggestions for the podcast. Those messages have helped me come up with some new ideas which I'm starting to implement today, including the pick of the week segment later on. I want to acknowledge that while I have, you know, fallen short of my earlier stated goal of delivering a podcast per week, I'm still all in on this thing, and there's more new interviews and episodes coming in the weeks ahead, and eventually more changes to the show. Listeners, thank you so much for continuing to put your ears on this, especially when you have so many media choices out there. As we jump into the Rona Elliott interview, she's talking about a transitional moment in her career when she was with NBC Radio. Two things happened in 1984 that I found to be extremely instrumental in my career. One was Tina, the beginning of Tina Turner's comeback. She came into the studio, and of course I loved her when I was a teenager, and she came in with her young manager from Australia, a guy named Roger Davies. And I interviewed her, I told her I loved her when I was a teenager growing up in LA. And I went to my bosses that day and I said, these people came in today and I've never met an artist and a manager who had whatever that relationship was, was like nothing I'd ever seen. And it's going somewhere. And they kind of looked at me like, what? Right. And I kind of stayed close to her and I continued to interview her a lot. And she'd start to come into 30 Rock for SNL and I just stayed close to her, and I made sure that in my daily radio show I included her. And I went to my boss one day after Private Dancer came out, or um, what's love got to do with it? And I, I said, we need to sign her up now for an hour special because she's going to be the biggest star in the world. And he looked at me and said, she's old, 
she's a has-been and she's black. And I was flabbergasted. I've told this story a million times. I'm flabbergasted every time I tell this story. I was so stunned because I didn't look at her that way. All I could say was, you didn't listen to the record. <laughs> that is the simple version of it. The version for me was, I could see what was coming. And I always had been able to see. But with her, it was as if somebody was ringing the Liberty Bell. This woman was going to be the biggest star in the world. And the people I was surrounded with couldn't see it. Wow, you were right about that. She was huge in that period. And she was, she would have done anything for me. And she later did. But they couldn't see it because she didn't fit into their frame of reference to what a rock star would be, nor did they understand her story or what she was going to bring to the world stage. So a few months later that year, I was doing a live show out of Abbey Road, which was obviously incredible, with Duran Duran just being in Abbey Road and doing the first live international broadcast. And they were talking about whatever record it was. And it was three days after they had recorded Do They Know It's Christmas, that Band-Aid had done it. And I'd been involved and still am with the Ending Hunger community. And a guy that worked for me at NBC brought me the, a glass pressing of it. And I was in the unique position to talk about the famine and rock and roll. And I said, this is interesting. You're here with them. And you can actually speak intelligently about this famine because I knew all the details. So when we finished, I said, you know what, guys? I had the show at the Hard Rock with Paul Schaefer. I said, would you sign this? There were no celebrity auctions then. I said, I'm going to figure out a way. I'm going to auction this off, and we're going to raise some money and send it to, for the famine. And their publicist was very concerned it would look as if they were taking advantage of this. And I promised her, I will find other people to sign this record. Don't worry. It's not going to just be your guys. And on the way home, who was on the flight with me, Adam and Larry, of you two. So they signed it. I said, okay, this has a flow. I saw that this thing had a larger-than-life flow. And they arranged for me to see Bono and the Edge in the ladies' room at Radio City Music Hall, where they signed this. So I had all of Duran Duran, right. And I could see this is something that's happening here. So at the Hard Rock, Isaac Tigret, who had opened the Hard Rock in um, New York City then, and it really was an exclusive happening place, let me do a press conference with Bob Geldof. And we auctioned off the record for $8,000, which was a fortune in 1985, 80, late 84. And they were planning Live Aid. It hadn't come to pass yet, the announcement of it. And I went to the people at NBC, those same people who lacked foresight with Tina Turner, and I said, I have this relationship with them. I broke the story. We can do this. We can buy the TV rights. And they said, people who don't have business cards won't be able to pull this off. Once again, I was stunned and thought, I, I said to them, I worked at Woodstock. It wasn't planned. And once again, I really saw that in terms of the people I was working with, they didn't have a vision. They didn't understand me. But they, they didn't have a vision. And vision is a very, very important thing to me in terms of seeing which direction the wind was blowing. And I went home. I was really in a rage. And I had a... It's happened to me a few times in my life, and it happened that night. And I happened to be having lunch with Isaac Tigret the next day at the Russian Tea Room in New York. And I said, Isaac, I'd like to spend about a half a million dollars of yours. I think, will you let me arrange putting the Hard Rock backstage in Philly and in London? He said, Miss Rona, he's from Tennessee. You just go call that Bob Geldorf 
So I went upstairs to a payphone at the Russian Tea Room and talked to the office and said, Isaac Tigret will put the Hard Rock backstage so the, the performers will have some place to go. It'll be exclusive. And I could broadcast out of there. Wow. Right? So I saved myself. And ABC tried to shut me down, but they had no jurisdiction over the Hard Rock. That pretty much, I was done with those people in NBC network radio. They, I could see I was threatening to them. I could see too much. And I'm not patting myself on the shoulder. I just had a different agenda and a different purpose and a different reason for all of this. And I went and arranged a meeting with the guy who was running the Today Show, a really incredible man named Steve Friedman, who was known for doing offbeat things. And I said, I can bring morning people into your living room. I was trained by NBC. I can bring musicians in. No one cares about musicians. I said, I can translate them. I can make them relevant. No one cares about musicians. No one wants to hear music in the morning. They never let me put music on in the morning. He said, you know what? I'll give you a chance. If you're good, you might have a career. If you're not good, no one will remember you. If you're so good, get me Bruce Springsteen or Tina Turner. I said, no problem. No problem. So I wrote to Tina, and I got a note back. I didn't keep the, you've done so much for me. I'll do anything for you. So in August of 1985, uh, I went to Chicago with her, and he gave me the best producer in the shop. She led us backstage, put her makeup on. She'd never done a television interview. And my career was born. And that was 85, you said? I think it was 85. So 84, 85. I really have to look. But because of Tina Turner and because of a relationship that was developed in radio out of my love and respect and admiration for her, never thinking, I'm doing this because it's going to pay off somewhere down the line. It's such a great story about following your instincts, vision, like you said, and just and just but you have this other thing, too. You insisted on speaking your mind and losing a job if you had to. I mean, that's not an easy. That's a lot of bravery to pull that off. I think it's for me individually critically important to respect the people I work with and I can forgive a lot of different things I'm trying not to swear here if your work is so impeccable that your personal behavior might be atrocious or if you somehow do something that helps other people but these were people who in the crunch passed on two unbelievable things that not only would have been career-making for either of them in both those situations, for being early on Tina or for bringing in Live Aid to NBC, the artistic aspect of it was lost on them. And the desire to please NBC and not make waves, that's why I don't work in a structured institution, I always thought outside the box, outside of the Woodstock box, outside of the KMPX box, but I was working with people who wanted to fit into an NBC mold. And that was not my thing. It was not my thing. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying I was right for me. And it was clear that Tina Turner was going somewhere and Live Aid was going to make a big difference. So on the Today Show, were you able to stretch out enough? Because you were there for 10 years or so. Well, Steve Friedman at the beginning, they had not really had anybody doing that. So I made up what I wanted to do. And the first thing I wanted to do was interview all my heroes. So... At the beginning of my job, I know I did Steve Van Zandt, and I did Tina, and each one of them I'd have to send out the clips and see I did Tina, and I wasn't interested in who you were sleeping with, and in those days, nobody cared what you wore. And then Brian Gumbel, who I personally love, was really kind to me somewhere along those first six months and said, I've interviewed Paul McCartney, I'm going to give you my McCartney interview, and then you'll be able to book anybody. 
I love you, Brian Gumble. You know I do. So he he had already encountered McCartney and had that relationship. A star, and he liked me, and I I love Brian. I mean, so it took a lot to convince people like Steve Winwood and Paul Simon and McCartney because he was used to the BBC. But the rest of these guys, they had not been on television, certainly not morning television, and so each one of these. They would see one and see I treated them with respect. And these were serious profiles and they were musical profiles. And then my desire, going back to 10, was to travel with them. So I would get in, Sting would say, oh, would you come on the, the tour to France? Oh, it's a hardship, but I can make it. <laughs> and the Stones, I went to Antigua with uh, Keith Richards. And I went with the Stones after the fall of the Berlin Wall to Czechoslovakia for the first concert in Czechoslovakia with um, Václav Havel was doing for charity. I went to Japan with Cindy Lauper. I traveled with Yoko to Poland to a communist. That was amazing. Series of concerts there when um, the guy with the glasses before Lech Walesa took over. I'll remember his name in a second, so it was still communist, because there's Yoko, it's an ice skating ring, a wooden floor over the ice, and soldiers with rifles, right? And Billy Joel's first series of concerts in the Soviet Union. So I definitely lived my dream. I went to Israel with Ofra Haza. I was in England every month. I covered every Prince's Trust, Nebworth. I mean, good fortune isn't even, you know, uh, it was the karmic jackpot. It's extraordinary. It was amazing. I mean, it's like the ultimate gig in music journalism. Right. And, and uh, you know, one thing I want to ask you, I didn't mean to interrupt, but the how did you prepare for those interviews? I know you had this knowledge of music. You, you were comfortable with these people. How did you prepare, pull it off, make these right. huge rock stars so comfortable in those interviews? Well, as noisy as I can be sitting here, first of all, I wasn't interested in being their best friend. I didn't want to sleep with them. And I was trying to unlock the secret of how they did what they did, of course, to which there's no answer. I've asked Eric Clapton, how do you do that? I don't know. A channel opens and it comes down. Can you count on it? Sometimes, sometimes not. So they, I'm in awe of them. And I can be incredibly quiet and intuitive, believe it or not, and to prepare I would read everything and I would listen to everything and I would just always go into that place inside me where I know people and music to see what, I don't know how to explain it because it's the same thing that makes them open that channel. I open my interviewing channel, it doesn't always work, to see who is that over there, to assess them as a human being, to see are they a jerk, are they a good person, oh surprise me. Are you someone who doesn't speak well? Do you breathe? Do you have a tick? You know, and to contain myself so that I'm not threatening, because I wasn't. I'm curious. I am inquisitive. I'm a fan, and I'm actually interested in the musical process. If you fast forward to now, the people who do these kinds of things, I would never categorize it as the same, except maybe 60 Minutes. They want to be part of the story. They're there with their fake boobs and slick hair, and I'm not interested in being part of the story. I want to know how Eric Clapton or Bono does what he does. How is that possible? So my preparation would involve some intuitive, deep gratitude for being there, to be sitting across from George Harrison 10 times. I mean, 
I can't, you know. You interviewed George Harrison 10 times? I, I probably interviewed him five times. And I would always try to find a point of connection. In George's case, we shared a mutual friend. I knew he had deep roots in Hawaii. My husband's family has deep roots in Hawaii. I carried a message from this particular friend who was someone I was very close to. But I always tried to find a way in and spend at least 10 minutes before an interview with someone so they got used to the way I spoke. And I could assess, do they breathe? Do they have a tick? As I said, I mean, just professional techniques. And it worked. And I felt deeply, deeply grateful. And the amount of music I got to see was beyond the beyond. And with the exception, I would say, I was thinking about it recently in my career. Is there anyone I never saw who I, I would have liked to see Bob Marley? Because he's a giant. I never interviewed John Lennon. I know all of the rest of their families and kids, but he's a giant. I saw the Beatles, but that experience that my friend Bob Gruen, the photographer, knew him intimately. But I saw the people I wanted to see. I saw Marvin Gaye over and over. I saw Tina over and over. I saw Clapton over. I mean, how great is that? Yeah, that's pretty darn great. I mean, I didn't see a lot of those people. It, it, you know, and, and it, a lot of these interviews, by the way, are on YouTube. Oh, I, I, know. I saw parts of um, the Tina interview. I saw the um, Ray Charles, Joe Cocker interview, the Joan Baez interview. So people NBC should... see posted them. Uh, you know, it... There's something else I want to say, though, part because of what you said, in addition to wanting the musical part of it, because of my work in the Ending Hunger community, in particular, Live Aid was relevant, but the Mandela shows were relevant, Farm Aid was relevant, the Amnesty shows, which I got NBC and Amnesty to make a deal that we could cover them. So it was the world of politics and contribution through music, through television. Those things don't exist anymore in the, in the same way I did. Uh, in the same way I did them, both because they're not sending people around the world to, to cover the Rolling Stones. Lord knows, they're doing minute things. I did a book on the Stones for their 50th anniversary in 2012, and the Today Show gave me two and a half minutes. And I sat there with Al Roker afterwards thinking, I did 36 minutes of David Bowie in one week, you know, six minutes every day, because culture was valued. David Bowie's culture, uh, his musical contribution, his artistic contribution was valued. So television is different now. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just different. But I, I think that the time was right. Music was important. These artists were important. Uh, it's a different world now, again. The stuff that's up on YouTube I didn't post. I once called the NBC archive and said, why did you put up the U2 and the Ray Charles interviews? And she said to me, those were your two interviews. I said, what about the 431 others? So I don't care. I, I have them, that's all fine. It's just I think there is a place for enormous artistic contribution. And most of the media we're seeing now, not all of it, that's not where its focus is. You know, it's, it's just a different world out there now. Have you ever thought about somehow collecting these in, a, in book form, and written form, all these interviews you've done? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And is there a project? Yeah. There, there's a big project. I have a large archive. Okay. And what I did in addition to conducting all the interviews, I always had a Sharpie. I always had my own camera. 
Um, I have every picture I ever took. I have every note, every piece of memorabilia. I somehow or other got to see Bob Dylan plug in in 1965. And while I cannot tell you how I got there or where I stayed, I kept the program. Because you don't remember or you can't remember. tell me? Okay. Oh, no, I would tell you. I'd be thrilled to know. I got a ride, slept somewhere, and saw Bob Dylan. So Newport in. Folk, 1965, when he went electric there. with Mike Bloomfield. Yeah. I was there, right, standing in front of him, sobbing. But how did I get there? Somehow I got there. So. Were you um, one of the people who were, were you celebrating this electric oh, sound yes. and people were around you were booing and you were thinking, why are well, you people booing? I love Sunhouse. I loved uh, John Lee Hooker. I loved, uh, loved them all, Brownie and Sonny, but rock and roll. I always say, you know, the Beatles were about waking up from the waist up in your heart and your mind, and the Stones were from the waist down. And rock and roll is mostly from the waist down. It's both. But Bob and the entrance of Bob into my life and my generation's life and the world's life turned the world. Bob and the Beatles turned the world on its axis. And if you think about the fact that it was Bob Dylan who brought the Beatles a joint and turned them on, as we used to say in the 60s, to smoking marijuana, in case you don't know what turn them on means, the world shifted when they showed up because they had a different job. It wasn't just music. It was about alternative, an alternative to the world we're living in now post-World War II. I believe that was the role of music to wake people up to a different reality. But yes, I think now at this point in my life, like many people my age, it's time to kind of wrap it up and make a contribution to the other people that are around and going back to the students here at Berkeley, the young people who need to hear about some of these experiences, whose world has been colored by the fear of 9-11, who were brought up by helicopter parents, who were brought up by in a much more protected environment. You know, people say, did your parents mind when you left? And I said, I'm not sure they noticed. I just left one day, you know. So I think I was very fortunate to sign up in life for that period of time and to have the experiences that I did. And I'm very committed to sharing them in any way that they can help younger people identify their own path and find out who they are. And that's Rona Elliott. We also talked about her Woodstock experiences, but I'll have to share that some other time. You'll find links to her work on the show notes page for this episode. And now, my pick of the week. I'm recommending you listen to an interview held a few days ago on the WGBH radio show, Boston Public Radio. It's hosted by Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. And I should mention that I occasionally work with those two, appear on that show, and talk about music from time to time. This particular conversation they had was with author Bob Kuttner, whose latest book breaks down what's really at stake in next year's U.S. presidential election. I like this conversation because it is a frank dissection of the chaos of these times, but there's also a lot of hopefulness in the conversation, and man, do we need some hope right now. You'll find the link for that conversation on the show notes page for this episode on the platform you're using right now and at themedianarrative.com. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. I'm Rob Hoschel. 